Hello and welcome to the Data Busters podcast, the podcast for all things school data. It's getting darker by the day and there appears to be some kind of shopping frenzy on the horizon. Schools are busier than ever as we steer the ship through the increasingly choppy waters of the autumn term. Here at Data Busters HQ, we're looking forward to the publication of our new book, Data Proof Your School, due in January. And we've been out on the road helping schools to make sense of their data. This month, we're looking forward to inviting our first guest onto the podcast as Julian Grenier joins us to talk all things development matters. I'm Richard Selfridge, author of Data Busting for Schools, and joining me as always is Jamie Pembroke, Data Buster extraordinaire, insight facilitator, and all-round data guru. Hello, Jamie. How are you today? I'm all right. I'm okay. Um, it's uh, nice to have seen you in person live um, recently Absolutely. at our Data Busters Bristol thing, which was we, rather good. We kicked off the Data Busting tour for this uh, for this year, didn't we? Exactly in Bristol, yeah, yeah. and really good to get a, just a, a, a room full of people, living, breathing people, um, sharing um, thoughts and looking at uh, where people are at the moment. And it's been really nice because we've been able to look at loads of those things that we've been developing in our forthcoming book. Um, so yeah, it's just nice to get out and, and talk to people about using data sensibly. Yeah, when's that book out? Uh, that would be out in January. Excellent. <laughs> we'll be available yeah. in all good bookstores. All good bookstores. Yeah, um, excellent. Uh, other than that, again, I don't know. If there's, I mean, there are various things we could talk about. We're going to get on to some really. Um, I'm really looking forward to the rest of the um, podcast. There's a mm. couple of things to say. Is yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about Ofsted being back in schools, and I think that's kind of working through the system at the moment. With yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of concern because schools yeah. have been under a lot of pressure, and Ofsted are coming yeah. in, and it would appear in lots of cases just not really mentioning the. Covid shock um, and expecting things to be backish Back to, to normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's there's two things that are really concerning schools. Um, well, well, one is this acceleration that there's now this aim to try and you know uh, it, um, inspect. I say investigate then. Yeah, yeah. Inspect. Uh, all, all schools within was it like the next year or something was a the plan they're going to try really and, and obviously outstanding schools now in school scope and yeah. you know i think there's uh yeah concern that we're going to see some schools um uh go go down a grade uh because well because things are difficult in schools and uh whether obviously they're going to take all those things into account or just assume things have gone back to normal one would hope not i think the other concern that i'm picking up on is this um and this has been an issue for a while is really uh um the sort of subject specialism in in primary and it's not like secondary you know, this sort of deep dive into the curriculum and whether, you know, primary, particularly small primary schools have those subject specialists that can can deal with that. I don't know what your, your thoughts are on, on that. Well, one. I think, again, I, I heard from somebody who was saying rather than deep dives, a lot of the time they think that it's a shallow puddle. Um, right. You know, you know, have okay. a look in a little bit, particularly in primary schools, because I think that, yeah. you know, there, there's a sense, certainly I, I have a sense in, across the primary sector it, that the idea of deep dives probably makes sense in secondaries when you're going into departments and there are people to talk to and so on but it's it's different if you're running a one-form entry primary school i think um yeah yeah know. absolutely and 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 one of the, my concerns or our concerns as uh, data busters is that it can lead to a ramping up of data collection and, and you and i do hear this you know even when schools are saying yeah we know that schools 
we know that inspectors aren't going to expect schools to have this data, or, or, or certainly they're not going to take it into account or they're going to look at this data. But, you know, deep dives, subject dives, subject specialism, you know, I've got to have this this evidence and I've got to say, well, we do this, we collect all this information. So it allows us to track those gaps in learning over time and uh, and it's up reducing of, of uh, sort of assessment down to checklists again, which is which is rife in primary. And I was kind of hope would kind of go, die off a bit, but maybe could get worse as this uh, this this need, this desire, um, this requirement possibly for evidence, mm. which is something we're about to hear about. Yeah. Um, absolutely in more detail actually we are um so this is the third in a in a series of pods, podcasts that we've done on early years and foundation stage we had a good look at the reception baseline yep. um in the summer we've had a good look at um development matters in the last podcast cast and in this podcast again it's just been a real pleasure that we um are, were joined by julian grenier um who's uh, joined us to talk about development matters um, and the history of it and, and how that is being implemented and his kind of views and vision on that. So we will um, have him join us in a second. Yeah, yeah, which is really exciting. And, and, and we have a particular focus um, on, on sort of maybe misinterpreting these frameworks as sort of progression uh, guidance and tracking documents. And that was a mistake that's been made in the past. Um, again, checklists. Uh, levels and sub levels and and uh, you know we, we we talk about this that uh, um, that the whole assessment without levels conversation sort of seemed not to apply to early years but it should have done because they do use levels just in a different name um, so it, it's going to be really good to hear Julian talk about some of the issues of of tracking and and data collection in early years which in some settings in many settings is 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 a it, well excessive a burden. Excellent. Okay, so without further ado, we'll uh, get to it. So it's our huge pleasure to welcome to the Databusters podcast, um, Julian Grenier. Um, Julian, who's uh, head teacher at Sheringham Nursery School and Children's Centre in East London. Um, Julian, before we start, um, uh, our opening question is uh, for guests is going to be, um, what did your first classroom look like? Yeah. Gosh, that's really taking me back a, a, a long way to um, 1990 and the very first year that um, Tower Hamlets existed as an education authority after the demise of Ilia. And I was teaching year three in a large primary school on the kind of border of Limehouse and Stepney. And it was the era where the kind of beautiful arrangement of your class the probably single biggest thing you were judged on as a teacher. I had some lovely plants, which I bought from Columbia Road Flower Market in all sorts of different corners and an absolutely beautiful reading corner and fantastic triple mounted um, displays of children's um, artwork. And it was really um, a lovely environment. And only if, if only the learning had been as good as the appearance of the room, we'd have been sorted. But um, 
you know. It, I'm sure it, that the triple mounting would have made all the difference. Again, I love that absolutely. closely. I remember that was that you'd get a piece of a child's work. You'd have to put that onto a piece of paper or backing. And then that went onto another bit of piece of paper. And then all of that went onto the display board. So it looked, yeah. I mean, it did look beautiful. And I worked with head teachers, I remember, at the time, um, where we would pretty much get out rulers and make sure that everything was level and it was all perfect. Yeah. We, wow. use, spirit we use spirit levels to check <laughs> everything was correct. Um, and also... When I went back to that school, as um, when I was senior early as advisor in Tower Hamlets, um, as I walked towards my own class where there had been a huge display board um, in the hallway, instead there was this fantastic piece of kind of 1950s looking art. And I said to the head teacher, when did you get that? And she said, oh, that's been there since the 50s, but someone covered it in backing paper at some point in the 80s. And then all these teachers drilled their displays into it with staple guns. So I just kind of kept quiet at that point. But I'm afraid <laughs> I have vandalised a major work of modern art um, wow. as a result of my triple mounted um, display work. But I didn't, I had no knowledge um, that it was there. So I apologise <laughs> on every Brilliant. front. Now, obviously, as you say, you, I mean, you've done lots of things since that time, um, but you've been working very heavily on just um, looking at uh, how do we how do we develop how we work with children in the early years. Now, obviously, we're um, as DataBus is very interested in in how we manage information and um, what information yeah. is generated and collated and then analysed. Um, but there have been some quite interesting developments. So, so take us back to um, is to, to development matters. Let's say five years ago, what was what was uh, what was being done, and what were, what were your observations and um, and thoughts on on what was happening in schools? I say um, a few years ago. Yeah, um, if if I may, and only very briefly, I'm going to take us all a little bit further back than five years, ago. and I'm going to go back to when there was the national strategies early years, which was when development matters. Um, which is the non-statutory guidance to accompany the EYFS was first produced. And alongside that, the National Strategies Early Years produced a document and a CD-ROM called Progress Matters. And this was um, an, an basically uh, an Excel spreadsheet that allowed you to enter the names of all of the children you were working with in the early years and put data on linked to those Development Matters age bands and check that everyone was making progress. And I think that was motivated by a sense that year after year, some groups of kids weren't doing that well in the early years and no one really had a proper grip on who those children were. So I don't think it was um, badly intended. I think it was well intended. And it also coincided with the point where some data analysis by the DFE was showing that children who didn't do well by the end of the early years rarely caught up and did well by the end of key stage one or key stage two. So I think it was a very well-intentioned move to say to the early years sector, you know, we've got to have a grip on which children aren't getting the best out of their early years education. So that's sort of where it begins. Very quickly, you end up with the situation that you've asked me to kind of comment on, say, five years ago, which is, um, you know, the Excel spreadsheet is kind of a thing of the past. And we've got much more sophisticated online tracker systems, all 
pre-populated with those month bands from development matters, you know, the 30 to 50, the 40 to 60, the birth to 11, often broken down into two or three sub-levels um, and people working extremely hard to populate those online trackers to evidence that the children they were working with um, were making progress. And Ofsted coming in and expecting to see a lot of data showing, um, showing just that. So a, a, a true industry really of data collection mushroomed up in the early years. And the majority of what people worried about was, do I have the evidence to show that my children are making good progress? Um, that became a sort of mantra in the early years. And that's what you kind of, for pretty much every day as an early years practitioner for, for any sort of scrutiny from senior leaders or LA people or, um, or Ofsted for that matter. And then just, just briefly, the other thing, of course, at the same time is if you were a reception teacher in the early years, you were also collecting a lot of evidence from sort of often from day one in the autumn term to build up this portfolio of children achieving or being on track to achieve the good level of development. And I've often quoted, um, you know, a really neat um, piece of research um, from the Institute of Education, um, uh, Guy Robert Holmes, kind of quoting this reception teacher as saying, it's the beginning of the year and we've got all these empty portfolios and it's like, we've got to fill this stuff with evidence. So that became, in my opinion, the driving activity of people in early years, evidence, evidence, and more evidence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I, I yeah. agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I, I, I was saying earlier that uh, we've now kind of reached the state from my observation uh, that there is more data collected in early years than in any other year in the state school system. So my wife's a secondary teacher and, you know, she teaches from year seven up to year 13. And there, there's yes. just, it just doesn't, I mean, okay, that's one example, but most secondary school teachers uh, look aghast at what is collected in, um, in primary schools at the best of times, you know, most yeah. primary schools are ticking off long lists of uh, learning objectives as they're called, but, but it's, uh, that's usually for reading, writing and maths. Yet in yeah. early years, this is being done across those multiple, those 17 uh, goals for all these different um, age and stage bands. And, yeah. and then on top of that, as you say, they're sort of building up these portfolios of, of, um, of evidence. And, and even now I even, I occasionally, it's not so much these days, but I still do hear earlier teachers say they've been set targets, progress targets. Yeah. Of, of sure. children making so many steps per year and now obviously with the new developments which you'll get onto in a second which is which is, has these broader bands they think well what do we do how do we show progress with these we we need to chop these up into the because yeah. we need we still it's, we still need to have these yeah. little micro you, you know sub, yeah, sub levels the sub levels yeah. because i've got to show progress because i've been set this target of children have to make four or five or whatever what even is that? What even is yeah. that increment of progress? How do you define it? Yeah. So I think if we un sort of unpick all of that. Yeah. First of all, 
again, often motivated by good intentions. So mm -hmm. early years teachers are working really hard. They're very passionate about mm -hmm. giving their kids the best start to life. Yeah. And that often is what is driving this activity. And I always really want to pay tribute, especially at, at this point where nursery and reception teachers in schools are dealing with often very difficult cohorts of uh, children. When I'm saying difficult, I'm just reflecting the fact that those kids have had a really rough time because of yeah. lockdown and other circumstances. And we've got these brilliant early years teachers and early years educators doing a fantastic job and really well intentioned. And I don't want to in any way sound kind of uh, any other tone than to thank them and to be mindful of the incredible mm. job that they're doing. But yeah. in the background, there are so many problems with this approach to assessment and teaching um, in the early years. So I guess if we just kind of pick off the main things that make it problematic. Um, one, you know, we know from, for example, analysis of uh, that Ofsted did of their reports that practically every primary and infant school in the country has children coming into reception at well below the expected level of development for their age. Yeah. Because if you tell the system to show progress, the system is going to try and say that, you know, these kids started off at really low levels and then we sort of added all of, all, all of this learning and skills and vocab and now they're kind of doing terrifically well. So the system is responsible for that distortion. And I think it's a damaging distortion mm. because it meant that we underrated what kids could do when they started with us because we felt under so much pressure to say that their development was low. But the second problem with it is that those age-related expectations are a fiction. It's a fairy story. You know, yeah. they're, first of all, there isn't any kind of robust research to say, yes, children between the ages of 30 and 50 months should be doing these things. That, that's not how previous versions of development matters were put together. But in any case, 30 to 50 months, you know, it's pretty broad, you, you yeah. know, hence people splitting it down. So the kind of idea that those age-related expectations were useful is is false. They're a fiction. And there isn't the evidence to say that, you know, all children should be at this stage of development in this area of learning at this age. And I think, for example, the Education Endowment Foundation's improving maths in the early years in key stage one guidance report makes the point really well that we know roughly what the trajectories look like, but we are not able to say at this age, this is where a child should be, and then this is going to be the next thing. It's not as neat, and it's not as orderly as that. And that's exactly why the new development matter says child development is not as neat and orderly as mm. people have sometimes um, thought it was. So problem one is that it's built on a kind of, found, it's ultimately a kind of story we tell ourselves that, that, that isn't really built on any proper uh, and, and useful information. Problem number two is incredibly 
uh, clear to state, which is that the workload implications of this approach are a nightmare for people in the early years. Absolutely awful. And the Early Years Alliance did a really powerful report about um, called Minds Matter about the impact that all of these sorts of things were having on people's professional, but also their personal lives, their relationships, their family life were all really um, suffering. So as a result of that report and the very strong messages that came from the Commission for Assessment Without Levels, for example, there's this rethink about development matters. Um, and Ofsted also signal um, you know, a major change of focus and say that they are not going to look at that sort of data when they're out on um, inspection and, and sort of do their best to message that um, to the sector. You know, we, we are not going to be driven by that kind of data. All the same, you know, if you're on a big Facebook group with lots and lots of committed early years teachers, pretty much every single day, you'll see someone saying, I've been asked to produce, you know, information about which children are on track or, you know, in my school, we do two data drops a term of the children's um, levels. Um, Is this, you know, what do other people do? Well, you know, we've got seven areas of learning. Um, do we really want to assess our reception kids twice a term in seven areas of learning? Would we put, would we ask our year five teachers to, to do that? If we wouldn't, how on earth could it make sense to ask nursery or reception teachers to do it? So what is needed is a real rethink about what assessment is about and what it's for and how we can make sure that assessment serves its purpose rather than becoming an industry in its own right which is not sensible. So the revised approach in development matters focuses much more on what is what sort of experiences what sort of equipment, what sort of adult support and teaching might we be giving children in broad phases in the EYFS to help them make progress? So it's a guidance document that can help schools and earlier settings and childminders make informed decisions about their curriculum. It's not intended um, as an assessment schedule it's intended to be what it says on the front cover, curriculum guidance for the early years foundation stage. The um, assessment decisions we're making should be based on the curriculum that we've got for our kids. And it should focus on, you know, the, 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 the crucial milestones that it's important uh, in our big picture of the curriculum for, for, for children to Uh, achieve during their time with us. So in other words, instead of making assessment central to our work, we use assessment to check that children are learning and experiencing the things we planned um, to 
check that those important things are happening around uh, increases in vocabulary, increases in children's kind of persistence and resilience and focus um, and concentration. And the guidance also says really clearly, you know, uh, and again, this is in line with a lot of the assessment reform across the whole school system. It says, think about the secure learning it's important for children to have. Don't think about how do I kind of push children from one level to the next, which yeah. leads to superficial approaches to teaching and learning, shaky foundations for those young children who will then, if we're not careful, move into year one with lots and lots of boxes ticked, ticked yeah. but the learning yeah. isn't isn't secure so we've done a lot of assessment work but it hasn't done the key thing it needed to do which is to make sure that children's foundational experiences skills concepts vocabulary knowledge are all in place or if they're not the year one teacher is clear where they need to pick up to support that child and um, where they need to apply the key stage one program of study flexibly to make sure children do have that foundational knowledge. So, so many things you've just um, picked up on there about, you know, sort of box ticking and, and not getting those foundations right and moving them on sort of into the next stage quickly. And those are all um, uh, sort, of, sort of stated reasons for the removal of levels. Um, and one of the things that I think one of the mistakes that was made five, six years ago was not including, and, and you think, well, if, of course they wouldn't, but not, not including early years in that conversation about the removal of levels. And they go, well, why would you? Because they don't use levels. They go, yes, they do. They do yeah. use levels. They have created their own system of levels and they are pushing children through these levels in order to show the progress, the, the supposed apparent progress, because they want to have a progress measure just like everyone else did. And Ofsted were, were driving that um, at the time and are no longer. But what I'm finding is there is resistance so you, you, to, to change. So you, you mentioned like you've got seven areas but but most schools i'm speaking to is that don't, they they don't want seven areas they want the 17 they want to track in those 17 goals still so they still want to record some form of sub level for those 17 goals so that, that the, the the broad age bands um in the current in in the new uh framework are being split you know we've got lots of schools i'm, I'm talking about the work i do through insight um that want those split into zero to three you know minus equals plus low middle high emerging developing secure whatever you want to call it um or even subdivide them further than that so you end up with at least nine bands and that's still going on and i think the problem is that uh whereas um primary schools on the whole and secondary schools have, have been having this conversation about progress measures for quite some time now it's quite new to early years um, i think the opposite is creating um, uh, Julie, just to hear what, what your thoughts are as to how people move forward with this, you know, because yeah. you know, people are going to, um, they're going to gather and collate information and they're going to, mm. to, um, to look at that. But just um, how, how you're finding it as you're um, moving forward, what kind of information are you finding that's useful? Uh, that you're actually Because again, we, we're quite focused on changing from a progress um, mindset to an action mindset. You know, the information yeah. that's useful to collect that actually changes something that you do. So how yeah. are you finding that? Yeah. So, the, the, the rule of thumb in development matters is, you know, before you start an assessment piece of work, think about whether it's going to be useful. Mm. And the problem is if people um, start doing assessment, but they haven't given enough thought to curriculum, 
then they can end up in a kind of spiral of excessive workload. So I guess I would say a few things um, and in, an, in a nutshell, really. You know, first of all, I think a useful thing for anyone to do thinking about the changes to the EYFS is use that as an opportunity for some self-evaluation. You know, what are you doing really well with your kids? Where's their scope for some improvement? I wouldn't, you know, necessarily think of this as a year zero where you throw out all of your approaches and immediately radically do something different. It may well be that the journey from that level of data tracking to a more kind of evidence-informed and sustainable approach is a, a project that's going to take you a year or 18 months. So I, I would urge people really to do that, to sort of reflect, look at the evidence and things like EEF reports, like improve, preparing for literacy or improving maths. Um, think about what it's important for children to experience, learn, be able to do. Think about your curriculum. Think about these sort of assessment that will support that. Think about, I think, what we've learned from the mastery approach in maths, for example, which is that we don't really want to have kind of 15 different curriculums in one class because everyone's at different levels and got different mm. next steps. How do we create an inclusive curriculum that works for all of our children and then think about which kids need more support and scaffolding to access that? And for children who are doing well and learning well and developing well, you just don't need that level of data collection. Julie, it, that's it's wonderful not to hear, it's something which we say uh, across the board is that you, know, you should be using the information which you have as a, as a rough filter to work out where are the, where are the challenges. Rather than worrying yeah. about everybody, a lot of children make great progress. They develop really well. Um, yeah. you, know, you need to know roughly who those children are. But you, what you really need to do is identify those children who, for whatever reason, are not making the development and then you know, then you can change things to support those pupils and everybody else. Yeah. And so I think the last point I would say is that when you're clear about who those children are, then they need intensive support. And that is a good use of assessment. So yeah. actually, in this group of 30, seven of my children need intensive support with, for example, the physical skills that will prepare them when it's right for learning handwriting. Mm. So using assessment really well to help those children who are vulnerable and may not do as well as we want them to do and to be confident in our teacher professionalism that the large majority of our children do well because our curriculum is right our teaching is right our provision is right and we don't need a whole stack of evidence to prove that i think that's fantastic again just great advice so i i can't thank you enough for, for that. It, it's really useful to hear that from somebody who's been so involved in in just trying to move things forward and just getting to people, as you say, to take you know a, a step back, think about what you're trying to achieve, um, and then see whether you can develop what you're doing. Because as you say it's not like you have to abandon what you were doing previously. You just have to develop what you're doing to to change that focus and think about really supporting those children who need it. And I think particularly in early years where. Um, for those who've never taught in early years, I started off teaching in early years. It's very different from a, from a classroom situation. You can put lots of support in There's lots of times and lots of ways that you can do that, which you know, it's much harder to do when you've got a group of 30 children who are expected to be in a classroom all day. So it's a different way of, of looking at things. 
Excellent. I, Julian, I, I say thank you very much for your time. It's really good to have you on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Great to have this chance uh, with you. Thank you. Thank for you, that. So there you have it. The Data Busters podcast is published fairly regularly during the academic year and is available on all good podcast outlets. If you'd like what we're doing, please do recommend us to others. And if you've got any questions, feel free to send a voice recording or to contact us on Twitter, either at databusting or at jpembroke. Uh, if you'd like us to put on a data busting day near you, please get in touch and we'll see what we can do. And don't forget to get your copy of Dataproof Your School when it's published in the new year. Until next time, we hope our discussions here have helped you to decide what to do now. Best of luck and keep data busting.